This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome ladies and gentlemen, my name's Charlotte Higgins, I'm the Chief Arts Writer of The Guardian and I'm absolutely delighted to be able to welcome you to this event with Andrea Levy. Andrea's first novel, Every Light in the House Burning, was uh, published in 1994 but it was with her fourth novel, Small Island, that she really sprang to fame that book about the experience of Jamaican people coming to live in London in the 1940s won her the Orange Prize, the Whitbread Novel Prize, the Whitbread Book of the Year Award, the Commonwealth Writers Prize, the favourite Orange Prize of all time prize. <laughs> and uh, it was a tr truly remarkable novel which she has followed up with another truly remarkable novel, The Long Song. Um, and I won't tell you about that, except to say I absolutely loved it myself and I urge you, if you haven't, if you've been foolish enough not to read it already, you must simply rush out and buy it and Andrea will sign your copy after this event. Um, but without further ado, I'd like you to welcome Andrea Levy. Thank you. It's lovely to be here in Edinburgh and, uh, and to be in such a large audience. Thank you so much for filling this room. It's, uh, it's very heartening. I, when I first started out as a writer, I used to hope for rain because I'd think, oh, well, someone will come in sheltering or <laughs> something like that, you know. Um, and it's so nice now to, 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 sell out, to sell out. So thank you so much for coming. Um, so I'm going to introduce... Uh, the long song to you, um, and then I'm going to do just two short readings from it, and then we're going to talk. Um, so this is to introduce the long song. So my last book was Small Island, and that concerned itself with the experiences of my parents' generation, Caribbean immigrants who came to, the, to this country in the wake of World War II. But over the years, I've become very interested in my Caribbean ancestry, and this interest has found its way into my writing. After writing Small Island, I was keen to learn more about the relationship between Britain and the Caribbean. Why were my parents living in the Caribbean in the first place, for instance? And why did they want to come to England? Where did that intimacy with Britain begin? I didn't have to look too far back into history for my answer, of course, and that was slavery. Not that my parents had been slaves, but somewhere not so far back in time, some of my ancestors clearly had been. So, should my next book be about slavery, I wondered. No, no, I really didn't want to write about slavery. Why? Because I would, it would have to be a story of misery and violence. And worse still, I'd have to enter the murky world of 19th century racism. I'd have to spend time reading the thoughts and opinions of that era, like this, for instance. I am apt to suspect the Negroes, and in general all the other species of men, for there are four or five different kinds, to be naturally inferior to the whites. Now those are the words of um, David Hume, philosopher of the Scottish Enlightenment. <laughs> or this. Humanity exists in its greatest perfection in the white race. The yellow Indians have a smaller amount of talent, the Negroes are lower, and the lowest are part of the American peoples. That's the uh, German philosopher Immanuel Kant. Or how about this opinion of black people? They are covetous of notice as is a child or a dog, but they have little idea of earning continual respect on the whole, they laugh and sing and sleep through life. And if life were all, they would not have so bad a time of it. That's from Anthony Trollope. <laughs> so writing about slavery would be tough. Racism had become endemic in Britain during the 18th and 19th centuries. Thinking about black people as subhuman livestock was an important part of justifying slavery. I wasn't sure that I had the stomach for it. Then I went to a conference on the legacy of slavery. 
where a black woman in the audience got up and said something that gave me quite a jolt. How could she be proud of her ancestry, she wanted to know, when her forebears were slaves? She was ashamed of this. Had she never heard the sentiment of a Jamaican friend of mine once told me? If you survived the slave ships, you were strong. If you survived the plantations, you were clever. But it started me thinking, what on earth is there to be ashamed of? Maybe I could tell her a story, a story about people who are much more than just slaves. I began to get excited about trying to give voice to those people. I began to feel that this was a book I had to write. I just had to do it. So in a nutshell, The Long Song is the life story of a woman called July. She is the narrator of her own story, and she tells us about the life she lived as a house slave on a sugar plantation in Jamaica in the years before and just after emancipation. She tells us of her family, her companions, her loves and her losses. Through her, we learn something of the rich and resourceful society that the enslaved people of the Caribbean had to build for themselves. It's a story that's missing from our history books and one which in the long song, I've tried to imagine into being. So now I just want to uh, give you a taster of the book and uh, I'm going to start right at the beginning which introduces you to the narrator uh, who is July. Chapter one. It was finished almost as soon as it began. Kitty felt such little intrusion from the overseer Tam Dewar's part that she decided to believe him merely jostling her from behind like any rough, grunting, huffing white man would if they were crushed together within a crowd. Except upon this occasion, when he finally released himself from out of her, he thrust a crumpled bolt of yellow and black cloth into Kitty's hand as a gift. This was more vexing to her than that rude act, for she was left to puzzle on whether she should be grateful to this white man for this limp offering or not. Reader, my son tells me that this is too indelicate a commencement of any tale. Please pardon me, but your storyteller is a woman possessed of a forthright tongue and little ink. Waxing upon the nature of trees, when all know they are green and lush upon this island, or birds which are plainly plentiful and raucous, are taking good words to whine upon the cruelly hot sun, is neither prudent nor my fancy. Let me confess this without delay, so you might consider whether my tale is one in which you can find an interest. If not, then be on your way. For there are plenty books to satisfy if words flow in free as the droppings that fall from a backside of a mule is your desire. <laughs> Go to any shelf that groans under a weight of books and there, ramped, wrapped in leather and stamped in gold, will be volumes whose contents will find you meandering through the puff and twaddle of some white lady's mind. You will see trees aplenty. Birds of every hue and, oh, a hot, hot sun reside in there. That white missus will have you acquainted with all the many tribulations of her life upon a Jamaican sugar plantation before you have barely opened the cover. Two pages upon the scarcity of beef. Five more upon the want of a new hat to wear with her splendid pink taffeta dress. No butter, but only the wretched alligator pear again is surely a hardship worth the 10 pages it took to describe it. Three chapters is not an excess to lament upon a white woman of discerning mind who finds herself adrift in a society too dull for her. And as for the indolence and stupidity of her slaves, be sure you have a handkerchief to dab away your tears, only need of sleep would stop her taking several more volumes to pronounce upon that most troublesome of subjects. And all this particular distress, so there might be sugar to sweeten the tea and blacken the teeth of the people of England. But do not take my word upon it. Peruse the volumes for yourself, for I have. And it was shocking to have so uplifting an act as reading 
invite some daft white missus to belch her foolishness into my head. So I will not worry myself for your loss if it is those stories you require. But stay if you wish to hear a tale of my making. As I write, I have a cup of sweetened tea resting beside me, although not quite sweet enough for my taste, but sweetness comes at a dear price here upon this sugar island. The lamp is glowing, sufficient to cast a light upon the paper in front of me. The window is open and a breeze is cooling upon my neck. But wait, for an annoying insect has decided to throw itself repeatedly against my lamp. Shuin will not remove it, for it believes the light is where salvation lies. But its insistent buzzing is distracting me. So I have just squashed it upon an open book. <laughs> as soon as I have wiped its bloody carcass from the page, for it was in a volume that my son was reading, I will continue my tale. Thank you, that's very kind. Um, I'm just going to read another short bit and then I'm done. <laughs> uh, this bit is from uh, uh, July, who is our narrator, then starts to tell you the story of her life. Um, and so this is part of the story that she was writing at her desk that she talked about. And it's about somebody called July. Um, she, at this point, is no longer a slave, she's a servant, but you wouldn't notice any difference. And uh, she's just gone into town to fi find her missus some yellow kid gloves with a bolt and thumb. As July wiped the stinging grit from her eyes that day, there came from out the dirty haze a startling apparition. From the other end of the street appeared a tall woman, a tall, graceful woman, a tall, graceful, colored woman, dressed entirely in white. She walked, no, she glided, for no heel nor toe of this golden beauty did seem to touch the solid earth towards July. Atop her head she wore a white turban adorned with a long feather that pointed so high, high, it did tickle the chin of God. The sleeves upon her muslin dress billowed like soft sunny day clouds. The cloth of the lavish skirt gushed from the band at her tiny waist, took a scale like foaming water to the ground. And the hem of this glorious garment was so festooned with embroidered flowers that this lovely surely had walked through the Garden of Eden and all that was pretty had attached itself there. Even the fringed parasol this fair-skinned maiden twirled could rival the sun for brightness. No adjusting of July's red kerchief upon her head made her feel worthy to linger within the wake of this fair-skinned beauty. In her ugly grey skirt, with a rip at the knee that was stitched so badly in black, her yellowing blouse with no buttons left upon the fraying cuffs and her skin, of course, so nasty dark, July was shameful as a field nigger. But then as July, with her head bowed, stepped to pass that elegant miss upon the shabby street, she heard, Ah, Miss July, you walk into town this day? It was with revulsion that July at once realized this colored woman she was glorifying was Miss Clara. Come. If July had recognized her haughty figure before, there would have been no meeting. For how July would have dived into the cover of a near bush, or stood skinny behind the pillar of a house so Miss Clara could not find her. Rita, you must remember Miss Clara. I have written of her before. Miss Clara, who was once the house slave at Prosperity, who did feign to faint away at any rough word. Is it me dressed you like? I'm a pretty fair face that make you stare so, Miss Clara. The quadroon, whose papa was a naval man from Scotchland. Yes, that one, the dreadful Miss Clara. Come, let me tell you of her. Miss Clara did grab her freedom before many others, not because she continued to brandish those aging manumit papers that her papa did bequeath her within her missus face, no, Miss Clara's missus was pleased to watch her haughty backside sashay out of her employ, for 
but me be a quadroon, missus, was all she would say to each and every task required of her. Soon, the choosing of her missus attire for the day or for the evening was all Miss Clara would deign to do. The 31 pounds compensation money for the loss of Miss Clara as her slave was of much more value to her missus. Then, once free, Miss Clara proceeded to flounce into town to begin a little business. Like so many other women with tinted complexions varying from honey to milk and oft-talked-of puppers from England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, fine, upstanding white gentlemen, all the cooking and selling of jams and pickles became her employ. Her ginger preserve and lime pickle were popular, but her guava jelly, oh, Miss Clara's guava jelly, oh, have you tried it, soon became the call of so many white people within the parish. Caroline Mortimer sent July often to Miss Clara's little shack upon Trelawney Street. Oh, I must call it a shop for Miss Clara may read this volume. And every time July entered that shop, Miss Clara's green eyes and delicate mouth would conspire to sneer pitifully upon her. Oh, Miss July, she would say, your missus sent you all this way on this hot, hot day for me guava jelly, but you must be tired out before inflicting one big, big jar upon July that could hardly be lifted, as she said, me know your missus love it so, me make it just for her. Her? Make it? Tcha! You think you would ever see Miss Clara's pretty fair face leaning over a steaming pot? No, me is a quadroon, but me supervise the cook-up in every way, was her answer. And hear this. Miss Clara's recipe for guava jelly was her secret, she proclaimed. She would allow no one to have it. It was to be her companion within her grave. But why should my readers have to tarry so long? Here is that unsaid recipe for you to cook up if you so wish. <laughs> Take a basket of guava and cut and boil them in the usual way until they are soft. Put the mush-mush in muslin to hang till morning so the liquor will drain. Add as much sugar and the juice of a lime to the liquor. Then, and here is Miss Clara's big, big secret, fish out the flies. And, <laughs> and spice up with cinnamon and rum and boil it, boil it, boil it until the jelly forms. There. Miss Clara's grave need now only carry her pretty fair bones. <laughs>
give her, give her a character. And, and she came fully formed to me. Um, and, um, and she got me out of a lot of trouble, you know, uh, when I was writing. So, so the book is sort of, she interrupts it all the time, as I think you can see. As a narrator, she interrupts it. Um, and I, I, I began to have fun with that. And I think if you're writing a book about slavery, um, you need to have fun somewhere along the way. Um, and, and that was my way of being able to, to really stay with it. Well, that sort of leads to another obvious question. It's about tone. Um, and you've written, essentially, a book that's very sad, but it's basically a comic novel Is about... It? Well, I laughed a lot. <laughs> right. Not a comic novel, I suppose, but it's, it's a novel that has a lot of life and wit yes. and laughs along the way. And yet it's about slavery, which is still continues to be an incredibly difficult subject for any British person, essentially. We're all caught up in yes. some way or another in this terrible subject that we can't really talk about. So tell me about finding that tone for this incredibly distressing, difficult material. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it, it, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a comic novel. I mean, it's, it's certainly not carry on up the plantation. It's... Uh, <laughs> The, the comedy is, is um, <laughs> if there, I wouldn't even say there's comedy in it. I'd say there's humour. There's humour in it. And the humour comes from the narrator. And the narrator has humour because the narrator is human. And, and, I, and that's all that I sort of wanted to get a, a, across. Um, I... I I, I think you'll agree that I don't make light of slavery in it, uh, and I don't make light of the subject matter, but my narrator is a human being, and sometimes she sees things in a way that become funny. But there, I think there is, um, for some people, they may find that uh, a bit challenging to be reading a book that uh, can be uh, quite difficult to read and about a subject that is incredibly serious and incredibly important subject um, and then to find yourself laughing it can you can feel a bit well should I should I be entertained by slavery but I don't think you are being I think you're being entertained if you are being entertained by a human being who's just you know making you laugh like anyone might or would tell us a little bit about researching this novel because one of the um, extraordinary things about our history of slavery is that there are almost necessarily there are almost no accounts by black people yeah. of being enslaved so yeah. how did you how did you find those voices and that material to put in the book um, well yes there, there is very little from uh, I think there are two or three actual slave narratives and they've been told through somebody um, and that's certainly not enough to base a, 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 a story on uh, but there were a tremendous amount of um, slim volumes and books and pamphlets and uh, essays by people, white people who went to the Caribbean um, and were amongst the slaves. Um, so missionaries and uh, planters, planters' wives, missionaries' wives, uh, you know, all, all sorts of people who went there, they seemed to always go and then write a slim volume um, and they would talk about they would talk about the negroes around them and and how mostly how indolent stupid and uh, you know difficult they were and you know the trouble they go through and all this sort of thing as i indicated at the beginning in the reading but um but i after a while of reading a lot of these things, I began to sort of see through, I thought I began to see through their narrative to the life that was lived by these uh, slaves around them. Um, and, uh, and I began to feel that I could really think myself into this life. And, and these people who were slaves were, were human beings like all of us here. So there was, there's nothing, you know, it was just um, an accident of fate that, that, that you know, they, they, they happened to be there um, and, and, and going through slavery. And so they were ordinary human beings. So I just used my knowledge of human beings as well and, and how I would have felt, to, you know, being in that situation. And you take 
account of the mores of the time and things like that. But just sort of uh, really think, okay, this is a human being. How does a... Because uh, the book starts out with a sort of mythical birth, slave birth, where a slave uh, woman would just drop a child from her womb. Um, and th this idea that somehow slaves were uniquely um, sort of geared up for this life, you know, that life of slavery. And I wanted to just start with that in order to scotch it and say, no, actually, you give birth like this in a hut, eight hours, in labor, you know, it's difficult because these are people. Uh, and so that's, that's how it came about. And after a while, they were just people to me. And is it a historical novel? Oh, well, I don't know if there's any actual real criteria of historical novel. I mean, it's, it's, it's set in the past, uh, and I had to research it, uh, and everybody says it is. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, an interesting, it's an interesting form of historical novel where the, the central characters have almost no... There's, there's no grasp on them historically, except through the imagination. There's no real grasp on them, because as you say, they've only been described by, yeah. by others. So yeah. it's, a, it's, a, well, it's yes. perhaps an interesting character, uh, category of historical yeah. novel. Well, the one thing I also didn't want to do when I was writing it was to, um, to, to put my character centrally in the historical known facts about the sort of end of slavery anyway. I didn't, you know, I didn't want her to be, um, you know, having with William Wilberforce or whatever. I didn't, you know, I sort of, um, I deliberately wanted her to be like most of us, because I can safely say I was, you know, I was born in the late 1950s, mid actually, mid 1950s, <laughs> and um, I, I have never been in the at the centre of any historical event in my life, you know, but, but I see them and I, you know, I notice what, and they, they impact on me and they affect me, and so I wanted to, to, to show it like that, to show what a, just a, an ordinary human being would go, go through in that sort of way. So it's not, um, you know, there isn't anybody famous in the book, I don't think, or, or anything like that. Or a but there are events that did happen. It's hard not to observe, since we're in Edinburgh, that um, in the background of both those readings you gave are two Scottish people. The overseer, who is the father of July, who impregnates Kitty, and I think now we'd probably call it a rape, but it's just what he felt able to do, I suppose, um, is Tam Dewar, a Scottish um, slave overseer, and also Miss Clara's um, father is a Scottish naval officer. So talk to us about <laughs> Scotland and its history of slavery, Andrea. <laughs> it was so funny. Well, the last time I was here, I... I um, I, I was talking about Small Island, and uh, I was asked a question in the audience, and the man said to me, uh, will you, you know, in your next book, will it have a Scottish character? <laughs> and I think at that moment I was writing Tam Dewar, who's a rather brutish and brutalised man, and I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh no, I'm going to have to come back with this one, you know, with this uh, Scottish character. But I'm afraid the sort of uh, Scottish connection to Jamaica in particular, and the Caribbean, is um, you can't get past it. It's, uh, it's, it's very, very clear, and it's very, very present. Um, if you look at um, lists of overseers um, on plantations, they nearly always were Scottish, um, they, you know, a, a great deal of people. And uh, so, you know, it may be possible to blame the English. But, you know, this was a time, you know, they, they, they were going out to find better opportunity from a, from a, a place that was uh, not working well for them. And the thing that happened when uh, a lot of these uh, Scottish overseers went, they, they were the lowest of the low here in Scotland. Uh, and they went to the Caribbean where because they were white, they suddenly were in the upper echelons of the society there and were, you know, mixing with people who wouldn't have given them the time of day um, in Britain. And certainly, when they, you know, came, came back, they wouldn't have given them the time of day again. And so they, they, their um, social status just, you know, went immediately uh, just 
just by virtue of the fact that they were white. So uh, it, you know, it was an interesting adventure for people, I'm sure. But my own family has Scottish in it, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't <Yeah>. mind. You know. <laughs> Well, the funny thing is, I, I was um, recently doing a, 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 at a lunch with a, a, a reading group, and um, we were discussing the long song. And one of the people in the group said, um, "Who here would admit to having any um, slave owners in their family?" And everybody went, and I just went, "Yeah." Because, you know, that's how it is, you know, and it's, it's sad and it's, you know, it, it can make you feel guilty. And it, but that's how it was. And there's no point in sort of trying to deny it. Let's just look at it. Let's see what happened. Make sure it doesn't happen again. Do you think our culture is still a bit in denial about um, slavery? Yes. Um, I think that uh, we know a lot more about American slavery um, and we understand that more, and it's slightly more out there. I, when I started out with this book, I was interviewed by, I've been interviewed by two people who never, you know, educated people who had been through a university system who didn't know that there was slavery in the Caribbean. Um, and and that, that, had sh that shocked me, but um, I, I think that that's possibly uh, quite common, mm. that... Um, Britain's sort of involvement in slavery it just doesn't sit sit well with um, our national story. The story with the national story, no, absolutely. Liberty loving. Yes, British. which is one of the reasons I didn't want to write this book. You know, it really it, it wasn't a book that could make you feel good about being British. Mm. I wanted to ask you about the women characters in the book, and you know, not not just the black characters, but um, the misses in this book is Caroline who's the, um, the, the master's sister, and, and she ends up, it won't ruin it, I hope to say, that she ends up being quite powerful on the plantation. Um, and she's a, an interestingly self-deluded um, character. Um, but one gets the sense, uh, you don't shy away from the sense that she's also, as it were, oppressed in various ways. I mm. mean, can, you, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you say that about Caroline, because often... Um, Often with a book like this, it, it, you tend to sort of heroes and villains. Um, and, uh, and I don't like to do that in books, in any books. I don't believe in heroes and villains, even in this story. People are of their time and they're doing what they think is right or what they're supposed to do at the time that they were doing it. And Caroline is a sort of... Uh, she is one of those women in the early 19th century who had no choice. Her husband died on her. She had to go and live with her brother because that was the choice that was open to a woman of her class. It's either that or, I believe, prostitution. You know, it's, it's, it was very stark. Um, and so she had to go and uh, go to the Caribbean and be completely isolated in this place and surrounded by black people who, to her, were, you know, at best sort of childlike and at worst bestial. Um, and um, and then, then she has and doesn't know it. Her best friend is her slave. It's, you know, it's her only. It's her only friend. And and these two, these two women's stories. I think you know. I wanted to sort of play with that. So that's quite nice. But it was it was difficult writing somebody like Caroline uh, because when I was writing those, when you're writing about the 19th century. To our modern ears, nobody's nice. You know, even the most liberal voices at that time would be rabid racist to us. Um, and, uh, and so it, it, it was very difficult to, um, to bring out some humanity in that character as well, which I, I wanted to do. But, it, you know, they, to our ears, she will sound just, you know, a little bit like a twit. <coughs> <laughs> Um, now, congratulations, the long song, as we all know, has been um, long-listed for the Man Booker. We'll find out whether it's shortlisted at the beginning of September, oh, right. which is one of the few prizes it, it, it missed off with, uh, with um, Small Island, didn't it? Yes, And I yes. remember one of the reviewers, one of the judges was quoted as saying, this book, the merit of this book lies in its subject matter rather than its literariness, or oh, right. to that effect. Did you? <laughs> no, I don't read things like that. <laughs> Probably just as I'm well. I'm quite really. sure what that means. What's that? 
Badly written, is that what she's saying? I wouldn't like to speculate. No, rubbish, but it was quite interesting. I was just, um... Nervous <laughs> <laughs> laughter. I was actually just going to use that as a segue into asking about the Orange, okay. the orange Prize, which mm. you've managed to win twice in a kind of curious way. Um, <laughs> the um, A.S. Byatt was sitting in that chair yesterday morning um, and she said that she thought the Orange Prize was a sexist prize because it presupposes that there is such a thing as feminine literary material, subject matter. What, what do oh. you say to that? Um, I, 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 I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, I don't, I don't agree that, 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 that um, the Orange Prize exists because there is women's subject matter. I think the Orange Prize originally came into being because uh, it felt like women weren't getting taken as seriously uh, and their work wasn't getting taken as seriously as, as men's books. Um, and so let's just, you know, try a prize. And I think it's, I think it's a great prize. The, the merit of it is that it's any book published anywhere in the world by a woman. And I think that that's, that can introduce you to some really fantastic writing. Um, and it also, it's been such a successful prize that it, it really has put women's writing, not because they've got subject matter or theme or anything like that that is for women, but just that you take them more seriously. You, you know, the books are looked at as, as really serious books. And uh, I do think there is something in that. I do think that there is something in that women aren't necessarily taken as seriously as men still. Mm. <laughs> Funnily enough, A.S. Byatt was saying that yesterday. She was saying that it was harder for women who write on a broad intellectual canvas to be taken seriously, harder than, than it, is, it is for men. Oh, right. But um, that's, I, I want, just before we open it up to the, to the audience, so please have your questions at the ready, um, I wanted to ask you, you, we were talking about this earlier before the event started, and you said everyone always asks me this question, which isn't going to stop me because I think it's quite a good question. <laughs> Um, and it is, it is about the fact that you started writing, as I put it rather rudely earlier, you were a bit of a late developer. <laughs> you started writing in your mid-30s, and I said the reason everyone's interested in this is that it's a great encouragement to the rest of us that it's possible to sort of begin an exciting new branch of your life, you know, in relative maturity. So tell us, how, how did that happen? Why am I such a late developer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I suppose I, I'll start from the beginning. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't born to this. I can safely say, if you'd have told me when I was growing up on my council estate in, you know, Highbury, that I would end up sitting in Edinburgh Festival talking about my fifth novel, I'd have thought you're insane. I had Shop Girl written, uh, you know, that's, that's what they said. That was all I was uh, supposed to want for myself, was to, you know, that was the most extent of my ambition. Um, and, uh, and so it's been an enormously long journey coming to sit in this seat. Um, and, uh, and long journeys take a, take a while. So, so in order to get the confidence to be able to just say, okay, I am going to write something and, you know, and people, I hope people are going to listen, uh, you know, in order to, to, uh, to have experience, uh, in order to, I didn't start reading until I was 23, you know, I hadn't read a novel until I was 23. And so, uh, you know, I had to do a lot of reading and <laughs> so all in all, it was a, it was a long journey and it took me, uh, it took me a while to get here. And so, but I still... Uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm that old. I mean, you know, I don't... <laughs> Neither do I. In terms of... <laughs> but in terms of being a writer as well, yes. I mean, there was, a, there was a, a time, I know, when I, uh, when I was younger, I thought you, you, you only started writing in your 30s. You lived. You lived. You, 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 uh, and then you sort of started to write. Um, and then it became like the publishing industry, you haven't written your first book by the time you're 17, you're tardy. You know, you just sort of, you had to be young and uh, marketable and all that sort of thing. And I think that we've forgotten that actually, you know, people in their middle age wrote quite a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just finally, I, I'm so interested by what you say about not having read a novel till you were 23, which is startling, but you're not the only novelist I've heard say that. You know, oh, good. It is, 
George Sanders uh, says that he hadn't read a novel till his mid twenties, and you know he's pretty. That's later than twenty three, isn't it? Excellent. <laughs> but I think I remember reading of you, Andrea, that you what, you you were a judge on the Orange Prize, and therefore were forced into a kind of pretty crash course of reading an enormous number of novels, and it was it was that quality and quantity of reading that actually made you think, I can do something more ambitious, I can, I can write Small Island, is that right? Yes, it is. I mean, I, I, I became well-read after the age of 23, I want you to know. You know, I, I started to, to be an avid reader. Um, but the, the Orange Prize, what it did is you have to read, I think it was 70 books in three months back to back, which is actually not that many. For the booker, they read a lot more than mm. that. But... Um, and it made me see, and it was books that I wouldn't necessarily have chosen myself, because I think the book buying public is pretty, buying a book is self-selecting. You buy a book that you think you're going to like. Uh, very rarely do you sort of pick up a book and say, that sounds awful, I'll, I'll read that. Yes. You know, uh, so, so, this was, uh, so this was quite an experience to just read all these books back to back, and I learned such a lot, just, uh, realizing when a book works, when a book doesn't work, when, when it, you know, really grabs me, what I like in it. And it just, yeah, it made me as well realize that you, you could broaden your canvas. You could be as ambitious as you like. And that, that in a way, is what I was saying about, you know, the journey of coming here. What, one of those journeys is to, uh, was to, to be able to say, look, be ambitious for yourself. You know, go to libraries. Go and read things. Go and, you know, really push, I really wanted to push myself as far as I could in that sort of area. And I'm so pleased that I, I'm so pleased that I did it. So you know. are we. <laughs> <laughs> could we have the house lights up and um, questions and people with roving mics suddenly to appear and hands in the air. There's, there's a hand up right at the back here. Um, yeah, if you could hang on for the mic when you... You talked a bit about how you shied away from the subject of slavery for, for some time. And I assume that when you started to do your research, you came to it with certain preconceptions and certain assumptions. As you went through the research, was there anything about the subject of slavery in the Caribbean that surprised you, that you weren't expecting, yes. things that you turned up? Yes, lots and lots and lots of things. Uh, one of the biggest things for me was... Um, something that I knew but didn't really, hadn't really taken on, that, uh, that uh, slavery in the Caribbean lasted for 300 years. 300 years. So that is an enormous amount of time. Once I realized you've got 300 years, I realized this was a society that grew up. A society had to grow up in 300 years. And it had to grow up under slavery's sort of auspices. Uh, and so it was a unique society. Um, and once I, I knew that, that, you know, 300 years, you had to have a society that grew up, then you knew that these people had to be more than just what I had always considered slaves to be, victims, you know, the middle passage, the sort of in chains. They also had to be working. They worked, they worked, they had their own jobs, they had their own... Um, uh, farms, they had their own shops, they, they supplied the planters in the Caribbean with all their goods and things like that. They were an incredibly resourceful people and it, an incredibly resourceful society that grew up. And once, once I realised that, it was wonderful. Uh, I just felt that this is actually one of the most uplifting stories rather than one of the most guilt-inducing, one of the most uplifting stories of human survival. Uh, and here I am sort of researching in order to tell that tale. Um, and uh, I just, it blew me away, to be honest. Ha more hands? Thank you. Um, thank you very much for a very, very interesting talk. Um, I was in Jamaica about 15 years ago on holiday, one of these holiday villas that was ruled by a rod of iron by Gloria, who yes. was technically <laughs> the maid, but my goodness, you know, we stood to attention and did what we were told. Um, I would like you to tell us perhaps how Jamaica has shaken down, as it were, um, since 
well, in, in recent years, because you have such an incredible mixture of races and colors and, and then this man-male-female relationship. I mean, all the women I met were as tough as old boots and they were wonderful. <laughs> they were absolutely marvelous. So two questions, really. Um, uh, politics and race today and uh. the male-female relationship. Oh! <laughs> Yeah, no, no problem, right. How long have we got? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, um, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know much about modern-day Jamaica. Um, I, I have been there twice. I don't feel that I am authorised, nor do I have the experience to really talk about modern-day Jamaica. Um, so I, I don't really want to go there in those terms. But um, the, the legacy of slavery, I think, is, is still with us, and it's still with us in the shape of racism. And that racism still uh, permeates all through well, our society here and, and throughout the world. Um, and uh, that's probably as far as I would go on that. The, the male, female, thing, well, that's, that's a, I'm not stepping into that mind. <laughs> Gloria, I probably can, uh, I, I know her probably, yes. Uh, she sounds like several members of my family. If you, but uh, I think that um, a lot of women uh, in the Caribbean had to, had to be tough. Uh, it was a tough life. It, it was a tough life during slavery. It's a tough life in Jamaica now. I do know that. Uh, so, you know. This novel, The Long Song, takes you away from what had been the heartbeat of your literary world, which was very much London, yes. in a sense. Well, what did it feel like to, to sort of exit London and set somewhere, set a book in, on Jamaica? Uh, it was hard. It was hard, actually. It was um, I, because I don't live there and I have never lived there and because... Uh, it, it, you know, it was a, a place that was different and a, a, a time that was different as well. It was very... But there's something about writing in a different time. Uh, I think Rose Tremaine said it's like a different country completely. Uh, and that's what it felt like. I felt like I was in some other place um, other than the, the modern Jamaica that we, we know. Um, but it, it, it was tough and I, I had to come back to London. There is a bit that's in London. Yes. In fact, it's, it's so in London, it's in Crouch End where I live, yes. you know, and um, because I, I, you know, that at some point I <laughs> needed to come needed back to come home. back to your manor. <laughs> <laughs> I did, but it, I mean, it was, it was interesting, it was interesting to do, but it was, it was an exercise in uh, research, you know, uh, in sort of um, knowing the weather and how the weather affects you and how and all sorts of things like that was something I had to research. But the Edinburgh novel doesn't necessarily beckon. The Edinburgh novel? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> Quest, uh, any more questions? I can see a hand over here. And a hand over there if we could send the, the next mic up there. This is not a, as deep a question as the last two, <laughs> um, perhaps rather superficial in a way, but I'm just curious if there's any social significance or any backstory to your choice of the name July for your main character. Oh, right. Uh, no, there isn't. Uh, there isn't any. Uh, no. <laughs> How did you come up with it? Um, I, you know, I can't. I can't honestly remember, but it's to say, I've never been asked this question before, so excellent. But um, I came up with it, how it comes up in the book. I mean, literally, that... She's she, born in July. She, no, she was born in December. But, but she uh, <laughs> Great. Anyone wouldn't think that I read this novel this week. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she was, but um, somebody was teaching her mother, showing right. her Thank how you. to write, and it was only the flowing sort of word July that she could remember. Uh, and so she called her, she called her daughter July. I, I sort of started with the character being called July and I, I'd almost intended to change the name. Um, and then it just, she just became so, you know, July. But it's not, is it, is it a name? I don't, I you know, so. very few people are called July, but. Uh, um, uh, the mic I think's up here, I'm isn't here. it? And then we send the other one. Hello, um, yeah. Um, where are you? I'm here. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, 
I really like the voice of July, both on the page and especially when you're reading it there. Thank you. But it's uh, quite an, an art to read in a voice that's not your own. I wondered how you got the kind of confidence, if you like, to find that voice. Well, the, is it the Jamaican accent? Yes. You uh -huh. Oh, okay. I, um, my mum uh, came to one of my readings once and uh, she said to me, how you learn to speak like that? <laughs> 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 So, uh, when I, I said, <coughs> I said the obvious, I, I learnt it from you, Mum, and she said, I don't speak like that. <laughs> but <coughs> I think I, uh, I imbibed that accent through, with, with my mother's milk. It's a, it's a sort of, when I hear it, when I hear a Caribbean accent, especially a Jamaican accent, it, you know, it makes me want to suck my thumb and so, so <laughs> it's my blankie. It's, it's, it's a, a beautiful, beautiful accent. Um, and I, I love the sort of lilting sort of way of it. And, and when I'm writing, whenever I'm writing, I'm always talking back out loud. I read back out loud all the time. And so with this book, always in a Jamaican accent, it, I cannot open it and look at it and the Jamaican accent doesn't come. It's just, that's how absolutely it was for me, right, right from the beginning. I think the microphone's over here somewhere, isn't it? Um, thank you very much, firstly, for a very, very good talk. Um, I was just wondering, when you were doing your research, it must have been difficult not to automatically blame or feel resentful or find it hard to sort of be impartial. And when, it, when you came down to writing it, how did you control certain emotions and make sure that your the white people in the novel or um, even your villains were three you know three-dimensional and had humanity because you mentioned the sister was quite um, cold-hearted but also quite lonely in a way so how did you find the balance and finding you know easier yeah. to sympathize well I mean it's sort of people people do ask me if I felt angry about it and I sort of uh, say well no I I reserve anger for things that I can change um, and this, for me, was absolutely an exercise in this is what happened, you know. Um, and so I want, I want to know and I want to understand what happened. Uh, that's not to say that there weren't times when I just thought, how could this have happened? How do we do this to one another? How do we treat each other so appallingly sometimes? Um, and, uh, and so those sorts of emotions came out, but they were on a sort of general level. And I tried uh, not to just sort of think of it, uh, as slavery as uh, just something that happened at one time to one set of people, and these were the bad guys and these were the good guys, because that's not how history works. That's not how our human history works. And so I wanted to see, you know, wanted to look at it absolutely warts and all. Um, and, and that, for some people, is quite problematic because they want to stay in that victim and, uh, uh, victim and oppressor mentality. Um, and, and that is definitely there, too. There is no way you go into slavery without really feeling that, too. But, uh, but the, the interest for slavery for me, the interest in this book for me, was about Britain's relationship to the Caribbean and about what we did to one another. Uh, and, and that's a much broader issue for me, and that's okay. You may not be able to answer this, but have you detected a difference in reception of this book between the black British community and white British community? Uh, you're right, I can't answer that. Right. <laughs> Next question. wonderful <laughs> session. <laughs> But Where what, are you? what, what helped you make this huge step from the label at 16 to, to here? From the label, the shop girl? Yes. <laughs> um, I don't know, gradual, gradual process. Um, a lot of luck in my, lives, with my life with uh, meeting fantastic people like my husband. And uh, a lot of, um, uh, I went to college, I, I, I went to a good school, um, I, uh, I just began to have ambition for myself, um, uh, so a lot of luck. What was the thing that made you say, I will now write? What, was there a thing? I, uh, I was doing an evening class 
Yeah, so I, I sort of, uh, yoga, painting, you know, and there was creative writing. And I thought, yeah, I've got a pen, I've got a pad, so, I'll, you know, I'll try creative writing. And I remember the first thing I ever wrote, I was so nervous, you know, really shaking at the thought of writing something down. I wrote about the death of my budgie. Um, and uh, I remember reading it to my husband and sort of, I've written this, you know, it was a paragraph, uh, shaking, reading this, and he sort of said, that's very good, you know. And, and the other thing being, I, I had a friend who went to Australia and we started writing letters, and she was very uh, erudite, and, you know, and we'd write these letters, and she'd say, your letters sound like you're just there, you know, you, you write very well. And so I had good luck along the way, uh, and some good teachers, who encouraged me, and uh, I think I've been lucky. I think you've been very modest. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's a hand right down at the front here. Um, there's a hand there. So if we can send one mic here and one mic there, and then this mic should come to the front row. And then we're probably done. <laughs> yes. Uh, have you... Is it talking? Yeah. Is it? Oh, OK. Got me. <laughs> Uh, have you thought of your next book yet? And if so, what route did you... I love the way you described how you thought of this one. Right. And has it got a nice Scott in it? <laughs> Are you from my publisher? Um, <laughs> I, uh, I never talk about books that I am planning to write. There's something I'm very deeply superstitious about, sort of telling stories out like that. Um, Possibly we'll have a nice Scott in it. I think it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this book got some nice Scots, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but um, I don't, it's very early days yet. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I, I, the long song took me six years to write. And it was a labor of love and hate. You know, that it was a difficult book to write for all sorts of reasons. And at the moment, I feel a little bit emptied out. Um, and, uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm not on send at the moment. I'm on receive. Mm. Uh, and so I'm sort of, I'm just living for a bit yeah. um, and seeing what happens. Excellent. I think we're going to take those two questions really quickly because we're allowed to go two minutes over and not more. So I think there was a, la there was a lady here, and then, and then I did promise someone in the front row, so sorry about that. Um, I just wondered. I'm over here. Oh, right. um, I just wondered why you chose the, um, the end of slavery and well, the f and the freedom um, point as rather than the, the central kind of maybe say, seventeenth. Oh, right. Well, I just eighteenth century. Sorry. I thought it was a, a a place of transition, and places of transition are often uh, very uh, interesting. And I think the end of slavery. There was this sort of idea that. You know, slavery ended in 1838. Oh, well, that's that done. Let's forget about it. But actually, what happened after slavery was somehow and sometimes crueler to the people of uh, the Caribbean than the actual slavery was. So uh, that, that place of transition is a, a very uh, unique place. And, and so I wanted to just cite it there. And finally, the, if that mic could come down to the lady in the front row for our last question. I just wanted to ask you, there's been many wonderful books written about the experience of ma American slavery, and yet your book is very, very different. And how much of it is different because of your voice, and how much is it different because you feel the experience of slavery in Jamaica is different because you said there really wasn't that much other right. than white people wrote. Yeah. Well, the experience of slavery, I'll be very brief, it was quite different in the Caribbean because slaves outnumbered the white people. That's a very, very different relationship that goes on. And so it's very important. So I wanted to get that across, that that, that is very different. Um, and uh, I can't remember the first part of your question was, but, uh, you know, that, the, the voice for it is me as well. You know, I'm a writer and I wanted to write a book that would entertain because that's part of, of who I am as well. Uh, and so, you know, my, my character is reflected in the book too. Thank you very much. I'd just, I'd like to draw this session to a close and I've got two housekeeping things to say, two and a half housekeeping things to say. One is, please, Hi the hence to the signing tent. 
where Andrea would, uh, will be signing and continuing the conversation. Secondly, be very careful as you do so, because I was asked to say that somebody had tripped over on the grass and stampede from Nicholas Parsons. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and I think that's sort of it, really. Yes, please, please join me in saying... Oh, yes, that's... Sorry, the half thing is, let us go out so that Andrea can, can precede you. Um, um, you know, in this aforementioned stampede. <laughs> and, um, and finally, please join me in thanking Andrea so much for a fantastic hour. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk, along with a selection of videos.